Welcome to the Million Praying Moms podcast, where we have conversations about prayer and motherhood for today's Christian mom. I'm your host, Brooke McLaughlin, an author, speaker, teacher, and small town girl from the mountains of Appalachia. Over the years, I've had the privilege of encouraging countless moms toward a richer prayer life, helping them catch a vision for the partnership God invites them into as they become praying moms. It's the combination of the two that makes this podcast different. Not just motherhood, not just prayer, both. Prayer is one of the most overlooked parts of Christian parenting today. And because of that, my goal is to help you see it not as a last resort, but as your first and best response. Hey there, friends. I really hope you've enjoyed this latest season called Getting to the Root of Weariness and find yourself already feeling more hope on a regular basis. As you probably know by now, my newest book, co-written with Stacy Thacker, Unraveled, Hope for the Mom at the End of Her Rope, released a few weeks ago. It's a book that's designed to help moms understand the role of motherhood in their own relationship with God, choose the freedom of living in God's strength instead of their own, and lay down the habit of weariness. So far, moms are loving it, and they're reporting a sense of fresh hope in their mothering journey. I want to thank each of you who have taken the time to get engaged with the message and bought your own copy or maybe two copies so you could share hope with another mom. But just in case you haven't taken that leap of faith and purchased Unraveled, I'm going to do something special and read you one of my favorite chapters from the book titled, When the Gentle Words Won't Come. This chapter is important to me because it represents a battle I've had in my own parenting. I'm sharing it with you so you can know you're not alone and that God has the power to bring you hope in even this. For more information about how and where to purchase your copy of Unraveled, just visit our show notes at millionprayingmoms.com. And now, chapter six. My youngest son has an amazing laugh. Everyone who hears it smiles big and tells us the same thing. He's incredible. And I nod my head in agreement because he is. The only problem is that his laugh drives me, well, batty. (laughs) As an introvert, the hardest part about raising two of those boys, you know, the ones that are 250% boy, is the constant boy noise, especially when it's in small spaces. And yes, I've done this long enough to know that those girls exist too. I'm here for you, girl moms. When they were little, I became convinced that if we lived on two plus acres of farmland in the country, their noise wouldn't be a problem. I could simply scoot them out the door after school and let them be little boys. About five years ago, God granted that wish. We were able to purchase not two, but three acres inside of the neighborhood in the small community I grew up in. And yes, it has been wonderful to be able to scoot them out the back door. My husband builds a wiffle ball field in our backyard every 4th of July, and there are almost constantly cousins and friends. They are playing their hearts out. Yes, it does feel a little bit like Field of Dreams. If you build it, he will come, right? (laughs) And it has been a tremendous help to my sanity to have a place they can go to be themselves, running, falling, hitting home runs, building things, celebrating with friends, and learning to rough it a bit as they help their grandfather in the big garden out to the left of the field. However, for many years before we moved on to this piece of precious land, we drove those little rough and tumble boys almost four hours round trip to fiddle lessons with the best instructor we could afford because they have a gift for music. Things were usually fine for the first hour or so of the trip, but 
after some time, the quote unquote, big laugh in small spaces phenomenon, as we came to call it, inevitably crept out and started to drive mama crazy. My little guy, whom others see as simply amazing, started to sound like a hyena on crack, or at least it sounded that way to me. Honestly, close to eight years later, he still has an amazingly big laugh, and it still sometimes drives me batty. During those car trips, I asked, begged, threatened discipline, explained why it was so important to me as the driver that he keep it down, pulled over, drove faster, and thought seriously about never getting into another car with this kid for the rest of my life, all to no avail. Obviously, since he was only about six, I had a few more years before I could actually refuse to get in the car with him. If it were only a matter of time spent in the car, I would probably be okay. But over time, an immediate physical and emotional response started to occur in me at the sound of his laughter, whether we were in the car or not. And I found myself completely unable to tolerate his laughter on any level. I was so annoyed by my son's inability to control the power of his laugh that I was punishing him for even having one. Imagine that, punishing a child for laughing. Possibly one of my finest mothering moments. Most certainly one of the things my son will tell his wife one day to explain why he's so messed up. Don't get me wrong, my son needed to learn how to control himself in confined areas so that he doesn't drive everyone in his life crazy, and we'll keep working on that. But his amazing laugh made it clear that mama needed to work on her own heart too. And during that season, I lost my gentle words, a problem that reared its ugly head most often when my boys were just being boys, albeit loud ones. Even now, my gentle words usually get lost somewhere between bickering brothers, even in jest, and rooms that look and smell like something exploded in there. I'm honestly a bit ashamed of how many times I've been angry over the last several years of my life. On the outside, I'm a grown woman who has her life together. I have a nice house, a hunky husband, and two seriously beautiful, talented boys. But on the inside, I'm often a two-year-old stamping her foot and screaming because she can't get her own way. It isn't pretty. All I want is for my boys to obey me and to be quiet and to stop arguing and to put their clothes away and to stop goofing off at the table and to stop forgetting things at home that they want me to bring to them later as if I don't have a life and to remember their chores and to clean up after themselves and to be quiet. Did I mention I want them to be quiet at least sometimes? What I really want is for God to touch my heart and take away my tendency to sin. No fight. No marathon, no, just keep swimming. I want to be done with this now. Some days I just want to give up, leave it all to chance, and hope things turn out okay. But several years ago, in a time of deep and intense prayer, God made it clear to me that my boys need someone to fight for them, and He's chosen that person to be me. They need a mom who will refuse to be beaten, a mom who will get up, dust herself off, and try one more time. The bottom line, friends, is that we're not getting out of this without some work. The motherhood labor. Motherhood is hard physical labor, sweaty work, manual labor of the most intense kind because it requires more than just body. Turns out it's hard heart labor too. And when the work doesn't pay off, when the pulling and tugging and coaxing and dragging and pushing and begging and praying don't seem to change things as fast as we'd like, we can be left empty, exhausted, worn down. 
In times like these, it's easy to let it all out, taking our frustrations out on those we love the most. And when we can't stop the toxic flow that comes up from our hearts and out of our mouths, you might see us waving the white flag, wanting to give up the fight. It reminds me of the story of Peter and the disciples in Luke 5, 1 through 9. A fisherman, Peter had worked hard all night long trying to catch fish and hadn't caught even one. In those days, I imagine an empty net meant an empty stomach, empty table, empty mouths, and maybe, for Peter, an empty heart. I can almost hear him thinking, all that work for nothing, wasted effort, wasted time. I should just quit. Ever felt that way, Mom? Useless? Overlooked? A failure? Me too. Jesus, in need of a safe place from which to teach the people, caught Peter coming in from the long, hard, dirty night of fruitless work and asked for a simple favor. The crowds, desperate for a word when the voice of God had been silent in their land for 400 years, were pressing in all around him, and the fisherman's boat looked like a good place to land. He taught the people from the boat for a time and then told the weary fisherman, Peter, to cast his net in the deep water once more. Now, can you imagine Peter's response? Wait, what did he just say? I gave him my boat, and now this? He's got to be kidding. Can you picture him, head in hands, eyes tired from lack of sleep, and heart weary from the weight of failure, answering the man Jesus? Lord, we've been out here all night. We've worked our fingers to the bone trying to provide for our families trying to take care of them and give them our best. We've given our all, all night long, and it hasn't been enough. We're tired and we don't want to try again, not even one more time. But because you seem to be something special, we will, just this once, and don't ask us to do it again. Now, you know what happened, right? Peter's choice to blow on the flame of hope one last time nearly sank his boat with success. He knew at once that he had been in the presence of greatness, and knowing it, repented, left his nets, and followed Jesus. I find a lot of strength from Peter's story because there's not a week that goes by when I don't entertain the idea of quitting, at least for a few seconds. Just this week, I sat back and allowed myself to remember what it was like before we had kids. Freedom and quiet were words that came to mind. I'd never really failed at anything much before becoming a mom, And I never thought loving someone so much could make me feel so bad. Certainly, there are professions that garner more praise and pay significantly higher wages. As moms, we're trapped in a long-term assignment that often makes us feel like failures, especially when we can't get our words to behave. But I'm beginning to understand that there is a way to find hope in the mess. It's our hearts that cause us to lose our tongues. Luke 6.45 says it this way, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What's in our heart comes out. Angry that your kids won't obey? It's going to come out. Frustrated over your financial situation? It's going to come out. Ticked off that your husband doesn't help around the house? You guessed it, it's going to come out. So the key to changing what comes out is to change what's already in our hearts. And friends, it has to start with admitting our sin. We can't overcome what we won't confess. Getting angry isn't necessarily a sin, but it is sinful to allow our anger to control us, our emotions to drive us, 
and our feelings to inform our actions and the way we treat those we love. Maybe you don't feel like asking God to change the way you feel. I get that, and I've been there. As women, we've been trained to believe that we have a right to our own feelings, and we're willing to fight hard to keep them. But the truth is that if our feelings are in conflict with the Word of God, they need to change. Before any significant progress can be made in this area, we must be willing to admit we're wrong and submit our emotions and feelings to the authority of God's Word. God's Word tells us that we sin when we let our emotions control us. 1 Corinthians 6.12 puts it this way, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Certainly, our emotions, the way we feel about every situation we encounter, are lawful or allowable, even good. Emotions serve as a barometer, helping us access our surroundings and even giving us a glimpse of what's going on in our own hearts, but they shouldn't be given the place of mastery over us. As Christians, the only master of our hearts should be Christ. Anything else allowed to control, dictate, or rule is an idol and must be dethroned as quickly as possible. If you've let your emotions run your life, as I have from time to time, causing you to treat those you love most sinfully, take a moment now to tell God you're sorry for sinning against Him. Ask for forgiveness and choose change. Choose hope. This next part will show you how. Feel, know, do. Tucked into all those magnificent psalms is one in particular by David that sets the tone for our entire study. We don't know exactly what was happening in David's life when he wrote Psalm 13, but it's safe to assume he felt death was close and very real. Perhaps his emotions threatened to run away while he was running for his life from Saul, or maybe he wrote this while in exile from his son Absalom. Maybe it was some other danger that made him feel forgotten and alone. Or perhaps the circumstances of this passage don't matter as much as what it tells us about David's heart. If we look hard enough, Psalm 13 will give us a unique pattern for overcoming our emotions that can be richly useful in our own lives. I've broken the passage down for you into three separate parts to make it easier to see. Part 1, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Part two, verses three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. And part three, verses five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, let's take the verses apart and see if we can unpack their meaning a little bit more. Verses 1 and 2 seem to describe how David felt during whatever event he was living through. It looks to the everyday reader like he felt abandoned, completely alone, and vulnerable to attack. And why not? If this psalm were truly written while David was running from Saul or Absalom, it only makes sense that he would feel these kind of emotions. Where was God amidst his pain? Didn't he see how David was suffering? Didn't he care? I can almost see his feelings escalating to a breaking point, just like mine do, as David told the Lord of all his woes. But then there's a shift. Verses 3 and 4 detour from groaning and desperation 
and move toward frustration, but not frustration without purpose. When David said, oh, Lord, my God, light up my eyes, it appears he was inviting God to help him understand his emotions. David may have felt vulnerable, but he was asking God to act in these circumstances in a way that brought glory to his name. And in so doing, began the process of reminding himself of what he knew to be true. God has a plan. David was the rightful king. God promised to protect David from Saul, and so on and so on. Then finally, in verses five and six, we see a total shift in tone. We started out with a David who felt abandoned by God, moved to a David who invited God into his circumstances, and now have a David who remembered all God had already done for him in the past and trusted him to do the same in the future. He acted on what he knew to be true instead of how he felt. What he did was affected by what he knew. That's quite a power-packed little psalm, but it beautifully displays a model for controlling our emotions that I like to call feel, no do. David allowed himself to feel the pain of whatever life event he was in the midst of, but he didn't allow himself to stay there. He knew the only way to truly bless the Lord was to honor him with his whole heart and respond well to whatever life brought him. Here's the model in a little more detail. Feel. What we see with our eyes, our experiences and circumstances, affects our emotions and causes us to feel a certain way. Our feelings might be wrong or they may be right, but either way, as believers, we are called to submit them to the authority of the word of God. No. Our minds remember what we know to be true, the truth of God's word, who we are in Christ, all that's available to us because we belong to him and God's many promises when we invite God into our circumstances with an open heart. Do. We act on truth, not on what we can see or what we feel. What we do is affected by what we know. As David remembered the joy of his salvation, his heart turned from feelings of despair at what he could see happening in his life to feelings of hope and joy at what he knew God could do. And he acted based on this knowledge. That's how I want to live my life. Love given freely. In spite of this fabulous model for change that God's given us in his word, I still don't always get it right. I mess up and more often than not think I'm doing it all wrong, but I'm choosing to fight. I'm giving this battle for their hearts and minds everything I have and trusting God to take care of the rest. These things we're fighting for don't happen overnight. I wish they did. I wish I could snap my fingers or wiggle my nose back and forth and make their hearts of stone turn to hearts of flesh. I wish I could say a magic word and be done with my own sin once and for all, but I don't see that principle in the Bible. Are we overcomers? Yes. Revelation 12, 10 through 11 says so. Are we cleansed from sin? Forgiven for our not so gentle words if we've placed our faith in Christ? Absolutely. Psalm 103, 12 says God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. This is fabulous news. In the end, we win. But in the meantime, we keep overcoming day by day, little by little. Over time, small triumphs become substantial treasures. I used to feel like a total failure when I lost my gentle words again, because surely if I mess up, I'm a bad mom. And surely my kid will talk about that time my mom in therapy, right? (laughs) Wrong. Allowing for the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart to change us more into the image of Christ takes time. 
Certainly, there are people whose lives get intersected with Christ and walk away radically changed, but most of us experience success in small measures. If we mess up, there's new mercy for tomorrow. As long as there's a desire to love Jesus more than we love our sin, there's hope for change. This is my new definition of success. I can't promise that following these steps to feel, no do will radically change your life. I know from personal experience that they can, but they only work if you continually confess your sin and use them with intention and determination. I can't promise that finding the gentle words today means you'll keep them for tomorrow. And I can't even promise that your next act of obedience will produce the fruit in your children's heart you've been craving. You can only allow God to change your heart, not your child's. But I can promise that holding out that flicker of hope, just enough to propel your feet forward in one more step of faith, matters to God. He sees you, and he knows what it will require to pursue your heart. He'll pursue it with reckless abandon just because he loves you that much. But in the same way that he loves you, the same way he'll move all of heaven to chase your heart and make it his, he also loves your children. When they break your heart, they break his. When they run away from you, they run away from him. When they reject your love, they reject his. When they refuse to walk in obedience to you, they refuse to walk in obedience to him. He hurts with you, but his plans for you and your children are good. One night several years ago, after one of those long music trips, in the stillness of the holy moments right before bed, I snuggled up to my oldest noticing the man he was becoming, and decided to try something radically different. Instead of speaking my frustrations, I spoke love to him, telling him Mama loved his head and his eyes, his ears and his nose, his neck and his chest, his tummy and his arms, his hands and his fingers, his legs and his knees, his feet and his toes. I love every bit of who he is, and I love the strong, mighty, awesome man of God he is becoming. I love his kind heart, and I love his protective nature. I love his desire to learn, and I love that God has given him the gift of music, all for his glory. It was a moment of pure divine inspiration. When God allows two hearts, mama and her baby boy, who's not really such a baby anymore, to align and speak the heart's language, he glowed under the weight of this love, and then paused to think and said, I haven't been so awesome, mom. His eyes looked down as the shame and godly sorrow I'd been begging God for came to visit his little heart. Why is it that love given freely, washed over someone with reckless abandon, does more to change the heart than begging and pleading? Even now, as he's quite the grown-up teenager, telling him what I love about him opens more doors than anything else. I think it's because of the son, the same son who was crushed and beaten, who looked into the eyes and hearts of those he had come to save and loved them into repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not his wrath, not his judgment, not his punishment for sin. Kindness. He gave us Jesus. Jesus, our tabernacle. Jesus, our safe place. Jesus, where we go to find the strength to try one more time. Will you make a commitment with me today? Can we stand together, unified by Christ and our love for our children, and covenant with the Lord that we will never, ever give up the fight? 
Can we covenant with the Lord that we will never give up on his ability to move in our hearts and those of our children? If you will, say it with me. I believe God's plans for me are good. Therefore, I commit today that I will never give up on my family and I will never give up on God's ability to move in our hearts. With his help, I will take the next step of faith, even when I don't feel like it, because he is the God of miracles. I believe God will meet us and fill our nets as we trust him enough to cast them just one more time. Will you invite Jesus into your mess right now? He's already there, close by, waiting for you to call. Pray with me. Jesus, I give this messy life to you. These messy kids, my messy attempts to be what they need, our messy, sinful responses to life. I give it all to you. Meet me here in these moments. Help me remember that you are what my kids really need and that I have access to you in prayer, both for myself and my kids, to give me the strength I need to keep going. Thank you for hearing when I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about how and where to purchase your copy of Unraveled, just visit our show notes at millionprayingmoms.com. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of Million Praying Moms. You can connect with other praying women by following us on Instagram at Million Praying Moms or by visiting our website where you'll find tools to guide you as a praying mom, like our monthly scripture-inspired prayer calendars. Yours for only $5 a month when you become a patron of Million Praying Moms. If you love this podcast and want to be a part of making sure it sticks around and reaches other moms with the message that prayer is not a last resort, but the first and best response to motherhood, consider joining our Patreon family. There are options for everyone, including our $5 a month prayer calendar option, perfect for both the beginner and seasoned praying mom who wants to pray God's word for her children. Depending upon your needs, you can get access to our classes, courses, podcast scripts, discussion questions for each podcast, and even vote on certain aspects related to the ministry of Million Praying Moms. And I also have a free gift for you too. Download your free copy of my resource, How to Pray God's Word for Your Children, when you subscribe to the podcast. It's a step-by-step guide for how to get started praying the scriptures for yourself and your family. If you love this podcast, would you help us reach more moms with our message by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We sure would appreciate it. Find all the links you need at millionprayingmoms.com. Want to learn more about God and His will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.